we doing? If you have your Bible, grab it and get to James. We're going to tackle 12 through 18 this morning. Um, while you're turning there, I want to just kind of remind us what we're doing in this book. As we think about, um, really the book of James is, is marked by the word faith. And really on a deeper level, what it looks like that where faith is actually rooted in who God is, it actually produces a certain kind of life. It produces that would be a certain kind of people. And all throughout chapter 1, what we, what we looked at last week and what we're going to look at today is the idea of faith being tested. And I really believe what we're going to see today is that where faith isn't tested, it isn't faith. Where faith isn't tested, you have no need to trust anyone or anything. If you've been through a test, you understand that. One of my, um, one of my favorite things to do, I um, haven't done it in a little while, but uh, back when, when I was in high school, college, uh, was a ropes course. All right, now, there's like two types of ropes courses. Okay, you have the, you have the ropes courses that were like kind of ground level. And you'd climb on them, and you'd have to cling very tightly for fear of falling afoot and landing on the ground. Um, and so you'd navigate these ropes, and you're, you're literally right there. If you fall, like, you're, you're on the ground, and you kind of work together with a team, and um, so you had to exercise some faith in one another. But my favorite ropes courses were the ones that were, like, in the treetops um, because they were, uh, like, the thing that everyone talked about and the thing that everyone was scared of. Um, and it, it was always this interesting thing. I remember as, like, a high school kid... Um, they always kind of introed the, the whole time when we'd go and there'd be a guide and they always had this, uh, this like phrase, uh, went something like this, if you see red, you're dead. I'm like, oh, that's so encouraging. We're about to climb up in the, the tops of these trees and if I see red on my harness, there's a chance I could die. Okay, let's go. Who's ready, who's ready to go? And so what we would do is we'd, uh, we'd go up in the tops of these trees and we'd begin to navigate these ropes um, and here's the crazy thing, is there's no way you could fall. There's no, like, you could fall, but there's no way you're going to hit the ground. Now, any, any of you done them before? Anybody done the, like, the low ones? Okay, good, good work. Anybody done the high ones? A couple people done the high ones? Anybody freak out? Okay, it's so easy to be able to stand on the ground and look up and know statistically that those cables and those... They're not even really ropes. They're cables that they could hold multiple cars. The harness that's on you, like you're not going anywhere, right? But that doesn't take much faith. It actually takes climbing up and stepping out and seeing, okay, this is real. This is true. I'm locked in. And if I fall, I might drop a foot, but my harness is going to catch me. Listen, where faith isn't tested, it's not faith because you have no need to trust. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You have no need to trust. This morning, we're going to wrestle with the idea of the origin of trial. Like, where does trial and struggle come from? And then simultaneously, what is the character of God? So the origin of trial, the character of God, kind of looking at those. Um, we, could, we could stand up and talk by the raise of hand, we could, we could share stories about trials in our lives. We could share stories about struggle. Um, 
whether it was getting out of the car this morning or uh, just over the course of your life. Um, and one of the things we've learned as we've, we've looked so far at the, in, in the first few verses of James is it's not if but when, right? Like, what does James 2 say? If you have your Bible, I don't, I don't have it on the screen, but what does what James 2 say? It's counted all joy when you face trials, Right? So it's not like, huh, like I wonder. I wonder if this is going to happen. I wonder if things are going to get hard. No, it's like if, or it's like when. It's not if, it's when. You get to verse 12. What does it say? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So trials, they're a real part of life. The question that I want to dive into this morning is where do they come from? Um, so we see in the Old Testament, um, God, God does test his people. And I want to look at a couple of examples before I do that. Let's read verse 13. James chapter 1, um, let's just jump off at verse 13. Here's what it says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so, so we're thinking about the origin of, of trial and struggle, and then who is God? Okay, um, let's look at a couple examples of Old Testament-wise. Because when we think about God, God like, interacting with us, and the idea that God brings tests, and He brings struggle in our lives, but when you look at this verse, what does it say in 13? It says, when trials come, when struggle comes, when temptation comes, what do we say? It's not from God. You know, we're going to talk about that more specifically in a second, but let's look at some Old Testament examples. Genesis 22. What's the story of Genesis 22? You're real familiar with it? I'll just fill you in. It's the story of Abraham. Okay, God comes to Abraham, and what does he say to Abraham? I want you to take your son, and I want you to take him up to the altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. So what does Abraham do? God, you're nuts. He might have struggled with that, and maybe that part's not in the text, I don't know. Um, but, like, he goes, he grabs his son, and they start climbing this mountain. They start making their way up this mountain. He's got the wood, he's got everything for the sacrifice, and they get up there, and what does he do? He puts his son on the altar. And he grabs the knife, and he begins to draw it back. You're familiar with the story, right? He begins to draw it back just before God reveals something. Abraham. Just before he's about to kill him, God reveals something to Abraham. We learn that God never really intended that Isaac be killed. But it says these words, now I know that you fear me. It's a test. It's like, I want to test your faith. I want to see if it's real. I want to see if you trust me. Okay, Exodus. Story of uh, Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and the Lord says to Moses, this is Exodus uh, 16.4, says this, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So God's like, I want to I want to see where your heart is. I want to test you through the, through the trials and through the different circumstances that come in your life and see where you're at and see if you'll trust me, see if you'll abide in me, see if you'll walk with me. Exodus 20 is the story of God giving the Ten Commandments. The law. Scripture says that the law was given as a test 
Uh, Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. I don't know, does that seem like a contradictory statement? Don't be afraid. It's just that God's testing you. (laughs) He's like, oh my gosh. Like maybe if my friend was testing me or my teacher was testing me, but like God's testing me. Okay, now I'm afraid. Look what it says. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may sin. Okay, now we need to make note of a couple things. Go back to James. Um, kind of dancing throughout the text in, in verse 2 through verse 18 are different words for trial, like different words that kind of take trial and temptation, struggle. And there's really two different connotations that are happening, okay, that really make a distinction. Okay, like for example, verse 2 and verse 12, where trial is used... It has no provocation to sin. Okay, so where it says, kind of all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, or when trials come, um, you'll receive a reward if you press through. Those, there's no like, we're going to see if you'll sin here. We're going to provoke you to struggle and sin. No, that's not there. That's not what it's talking about. Now, verses 13 and 14, it it is what it's talking about. Because look at what it says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Okay, when we're talking about temptation, what are we talking about? Being provoked. To dishonor the name of God. Being provoked to say, I want this over the good beauty and joy found in Christ. I'm being provoked to sin. Okay, now there's a distinction here that we have to make and we have to see. Because hear this. The trials we face in our lives are never God provoking us to sin, but rather God provoking us to trust. Okay? The trials that we face in our lives are never, never God, God drawing us in. I'm going to provoking you to sin. But he's provoking us to trust him. Okay? Now, Let's wrestle with that. Um, Let's think on that for a little bit. Because when you look at verse 13, one of the things that comes out is the idea of God's character and God's nature. I want to read a quote by a guy smarter than me. um, And 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 then give you an example of of what's meant here. Listen to this. uh, Complete submission to God's will, even in incomprehensible suffering, constitutes the essence of the obedience demanded... With this, the test is passed. Fundamentally, the idea is the same here as in the testing of Abraham or Israel by God. When a man is tested, it is his readiness to commit himself wholly to God, which is on trial. To be obedient and to come out of the trial successfully is thus to count on God. Now, um, Several years ago, my wife and I took a trip to Colorado, um, probably one of my favorite places in the world. I could live there if the Lord would let me. But, um, so we took a trip to Colorado, and we hired a guide to take us rock climbing. And, um, and then we went, we went backpacking after that. And so we're, we're going rock climbing, and if you've been rock climbing, maybe some of you have been rock climbing, and it's like, you know, you go into a room, and they got like little hand holds, and like, like no, this is like cliff 
like rock face wall. Um, and so here, here's what the guy did. We get there, and we get to this, and, he, and he's like, uh, okay, we're going to go around the back of the cliff because we've got to set up our ropes. So like we're at the bottom of this cliff, and we look up, and we're like, that's what we're climbing. But we didn't have any ropes, so we're not just going to like shimmy up it. So we, we hike around this cliff, and then we begin to walk up the cliff. And then you know what we got to do? Go down it. Okay, so, so we hired a guy. This guy's smarter than we, we are. We didn't know about how to anchor and all that type of stuff. So, um, so he's setting up the ropes. He's describing everything that he's doing. We're getting harnessed up. And we hear the familiar phrase, if you see red, you're dead. And, and so then he, he locks us in. And I, you know, being the leader, I was like, babe, I'll go first. And we begin to go down. We're, we're going to climb. Like we hired a, a, a guide to rock climb. What happened? We had to rappel before we got to rock climb. Anybody ever rappelled before? Okay, it's a tad bit terrifying because here's what happens. Okay, I'm going to go down this cliff. There's a harness on me and there's a rope. Okay, we're pretty adventurous, if, you know, if some of you maybe didn't know that. Um, so that's why we love this kind of stuff, my wife and I. But, so we're, this, is our, this is a trip for our anniversary. Some of you are like, I want to lay on a beach. We're like, no, we want to hike, backpack, need some mountains. Um, and so um, my wife's standing there, and it's like, a, it's like a 100 foot, 150 foot drop. Okay, like you get to the edge, and you're like, like holy cow. So we're, we're, we're tied up here. Now, here's what they teach you, is that you get to the edge of the cliff, and you sit down. Okay, now... 100, 150 feet, like you're just going to give way to the rope and trust, okay? Because here, here's what happened, here's what the, and here's what the guide said. If you don't trust the rope and sit down, your feet are going to come out from under you, and your stomach and your face are going to hit the front of the cliff. Lean in to the rope. So we're on there. And what do we do? We know we could put a car on this thing. It's not going to break. We know this guy knows what he's doing. And we'll just trust God and just lean back. And once you lean back and you get going down the cliff, the anxiety and the fear, you begin to realize you're good. You're good. Listen, this is what the text is talking about. And this author, when he writes to be obedient and to come out of the trial successfully is to count on God, to lean into the rope. I think that so often, and what I'm guilty of is trusting God from a distance. Like, you know, I could look at that, look at that cliff and where I'm supposed to climb, or I could look at uh, that high ropes course and from a distance describe what trust should be like. Or from a distance say, God, I don't think you could do that. And God's like, press into the rope. Lean into the rope and find that I'm provoking you, I'm enticing you, I'm wooing you to trust me. One of my favorite sayings is, God's always been faithful and he'll do it again. God's always been faithful and he'll do it again. So let's talk about the nature of God. Um, one of the 
one of the biggest, if not the biggest, means by which God's character is put on trial is in the area of suffering. Right? I mean, if any of you in, in your attempts to, in your own life, to talk with people, got the question about hard things in life, got the question of suffering and pain and evil, if God is good, then, like, put, it's putting God on trial. Um. It's one of the biggest roadblocks to belief in a God is, look at our world. Okay? Um, So we need to think about God. Who is God? Um, I wrote this question down. Is the trustworthiness of God dependent upon how much we trust Him? Is the trustworthiness of God dependent upon how much we trust Him? No. No. Not at all. Not at all. In the same way that the trustworthiness of the rope isn't dependent upon whether or not I get up there or not. Now, whether or not I get up there or not will determine if I find out that it's trustworthy. Okay? But we just don't press into the rope. We just don't lean into the rope. We don't lean in and and see that God is faithful. Okay? Because who God is at his core isn't contingent upon what we think of him. And to define and build out, here's who God is because here's what we think of him. Or here's who God is because here's what we've seen our father be like or this spiritual person be like. And so that must be who God is. You don't define God. God is. Evil never finds its origin in him because it's against his nature. That's what verse 13 is talking about. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Listen, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Okay, now, it's like, it's this question. Can God, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? What do you think? Could God create a rock so big that he then couldn't pick it up? Well, that's, a, that's kind of a problematic question. Why? Because God cannot do what is against his nature. He can't. It's against his nature because his nature isn't evil. His nature isn't wicked. His nature is good. In a little bit, we're going to talk about what it looks like that he's a good father. I love that song that we sang. But evil never finds its origin in him. Take Jesus, okay, for example. Okay? The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way. Okay? But Jesus had had given up his rights as God, right? So it wasn't that he was tempted, but yet he never really had the pot. So many people believe that. They believe the idea that when Jesus came to the earth and temptation came in his life, that he really didn't have the ability to sin. Well, if he didn't have the ability to sin, then could he really understand what we go through when the scripture says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses? Well, the truth is, is that he could have, because he gave up his rights as God. He set them aside. He was fully human. I love 1 Corinthians ten 13. I'm sure you've heard of it, maybe even quoted it in the face of temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be, be tempted beyond what you were able. Why? Okay, so trial, struggle happens in our life, and God says, there's always a way out. Because that's his nature and that's his character. That's who he is. With the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. So here's the question. Where does sin come from? 
Um, Look at 14, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we can't run from sin any more than we can get out of ourselves. Because the nature of sin is really at the core of who we are in the flesh, apart from who God is and who he's made us to be. Does that make sense? Okay, so when it says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, The first one is James 4. When James writes a little bit later in the book, here's what he says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Okay, stop. Don't read the rest of the verse. Even if you remember it, forget it. Okay, what causes quarrels and fights among you? What's the most common answer to that question? That girl. Right? That neighbor, that guy who cut me off, this kid won't listen. Keep reading. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You cut down, you destroy, because what you want isn't what you have. You covet and cannot obtain. I want that. You can't have it, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So it comes from within. It's the same thing that, like, that Paul writes when he talks about that what defiles a person isn't what goes into them, but it's what comes out of them. Um, Romans 7. Romans 7, I want to actually start at verse 20. Um, reading the entirety of Romans 7 is fantastic on this topic, but look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So there's this struggle. This is the Apostle Paul as a Christian. Some people will wrongly argue that Paul, this is pre-Paul's conversion and he's wrestling with sin and he can't wrestle with sin to be a Christian. The problem with that argumentation is the Bible, all of it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And look at Paul's conclusion. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. So he's like, his conclusion isn't like all that's going on around him, all the evil that's going on around him. His conclusion is the war in his own soul to trust God over his own ugly, evil desires. And his only conclusion is I'm wretched. I need Jesus. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you know what's happening right in that moment? Jesus is like, I will. And so right now in this moment, the struggle that you're facing, the war that you're facing, the temptation that you're facing, and you're like, who's going to deliver me? You know what Jesus is saying right now? I am. You've got to press into me. I press into the rope, lean into the rope, 
Trust me. Trust me. I'm a good father. Trust me. I think this is in part, like you've heard the lie before, you've heard the statement. I'll call it a lie after I say the statement. You've heard the statement before. Well, God's made me this way. Right? Like these desires or what I, how I live, like it's just who I am. God's made me this way. Well, I don't agree with that. I don't know what you think. Um, I don't agree with that because, and the reason why is because Genesis 3, the curse of sin. So in the fall, it wasn't just kind of, things kind of went wrong. It was, there was a curse. Everything was distorted. And so then as, as people, even when we're born, the Bible says that we come from the womb speaking lies. Okay, all these cute little babies that have just been born. Liars. No. <laughs> I don't think Brittany's back there teaching that little cutie how to, how to, how to lie and be conniving. And, but she's going to be. <laughs> Sorry. She's adorable, but she's going to be. As hard as you try to teach her not to, she's going to be. Why? Because of evil. Because of the brokenness of our own desires. Look at 15. 15, and then we'll, and then we'll get to, the, we'll get to the, good, the, the, the good side of the story. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So notice that progression. So desire becomes pregnant with sin... And eventually gives birth that eventually will begin to destroy us. Um, another uh, guy smarter than me says this. Thomas Chalmers, who lived in the 19th century. Um, it, I would encourage you to look up his stuff. Google the expulsive power of a new affection. It's incredible. But here's one quote that, I, that just got me. A moralist... So someone who wants to, in the heart of who they are, try to be good. Okay? A moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to displace his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. So it's like you step back and you look at the, the darkness of the world and you begin to try to just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop, I'm going to abstain from it, I'm not going to be that way. Misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. We shall never be able to arrest any of its leading pursuits by a naked demonstration of their vanity. Is it just to step back and say, that's not good, I can't. That's only going to work for so long. It is quite in vain to think of stopping one of the pursuits in any way else but by stimulating to another. And what's the other? Christ. That he's better. That we run to him, that we lean into the rope, that we press into who he is. So this is the progression of Romans or um, of James 15 is that there's this temptation to sin and it's not a divine activity. It's an evil activity. 
Okay? And the temptation then begins to draw us and begin to believe, I want to satisfy myself. I don't want to trust God. And then there's this, this desire becomes, begins to be this powerful attraction, and it begins to grab a hold of who we are, and it begins to affect us at the core of who we are. And sin begins to live within self. And sin in self grows to maturity. And then sin slays the host. Okay? But God. That's what Ephesians 2 says, right? But God. Okay, go to, go, go to 16. Look at what this says. This is fantastic. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So he's like, James is writing to the people that he's writing to, and he's writing to us, that he's like, in the midst of all that I've just said, don't be deceived about what's real. Don't be deceived about the origin of evil and the origin of sin. Don't be deceived about the nature of God. And don't be deceived about how then we live in light of it. Because what does James, what does uh, verse 17 say? For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So think about that. Think about it. James' argumentation in all of this gets back to the reality of who is God as Father. Okay, what, what do you think it means? Father of lights. Anybody? Coming down from the Father of lights. When, if, if I were to say God is a Father of light, what, does that trigger anything? What does light connotate? What is light depicting? What? Creation? Yeah. What do we know happened in creation? It was good. It was holy. It was perfect. What else is light depicting? Let me, let me read to you First John 1, 5. It says this, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So it's defining the, the nature and character of the Heavenly Father, of his goodness. Okay? And then it uses this illustration of a shadow. What's a shadow? A shadow is like a depiction of the original, but it's also very easily skewed. Okay? By the, where the source is, and what's in the way, and what's on the ground. And if you walk in front of it, the shadow changes. And James is like, God doesn't change. He's a good father. He doesn't change. He isn't moody and unpredictable and a sleep-deprived dad. Maybe you view God that way. He's just moody and unpredictable and you sleep. You just need some more sleep. No. He's a good father. 
that everything we have, everything you have from the clothes on your body to the breath you are breathing to the struggle in your mind to try to navigate your life, the relationships you have, the people in your life, the gifts and the talents and the abilities you have and I have. What does it say? They come down from a good dad who's never provoking us to sin but is always provoking us to trust him. Always provoking us to trust him. Um, Here's one of the things that that baffles me about the story of the gospel is that you have, in the story of the gospel, a good dad who takes his son and sends him into utter brokenness and says, this is good and I'm going to take care of you. It's going to be hard. In fact, you're going to give up your life. That's the gospel. A good dad sending his son into struggle and into pain all under his protection. It's not if, but when trials come. And it's not just this idea that God's just going to test us as if to just, we'll just see how Rick does. He's wooing us. I don't know that many of us, I don't know that I would argue that my trials are God's wooing, right? I mean, when you think of like, we think about like what's going on in your life, like that's just so not romantic, right? (laughs) You think about wooing someone you care about, someone you love, you're just like, that's not how I would go about it. But God's like, press into me, trust me. You're going to get through this. I'm going to see you through this. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm even going to clean up the mess of who you are. And it's going to take your entire life for me to work on you. And it's going to go slow, way slower than you want, way slower than I want. But I'm a good dad. I'm a good dad. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creation. Sin births death. A good dad is the one who brings about life. That's the contrast. That's the struggle. That's what we struggle to believe from early on, when I became a dad, one of my favorite things to do was to scare everybody with my kids. So I would begin training them from early on how to be an acrobat. Some of you, you've seen this. And I would balance them. And I always got these like, oh, oh, okay, you're going to catch them. And from Mikhail, when she was, I don't know, six months, maybe younger, like hold, she was the super stiff thing. If you guys, some of you remember that. Like, and uh, I would just grab her feet and hold her up. She would just like, you know, people were really like, oh, you, uh. um, like, and I've been doing this kind of thing for like all their life, all of my kids, and 
it's built over the years a sense of trust. Like they'll climb up in the tree and they'll just like be in the tree and they'll be like, woo! And I'm just like, like what if I moved? Like, they, they didn't, like rarely ever in their mind are they thinking like, like will he get me? Like will like they're trusting. But here's here's still what's crazy. I've been doing this, especially. I mean, Mikhail's the oldest. So for seven, well, I guess I didn't start when she came out of the womb, but um, so maybe uh, six and a half years. And there's still moments. There's still moments where she gets in that place and she's like, Daddy, you got me? And my response every single time, I hope I can always respond this way, but my response every single time is, have I ever dropped you before? And then she's like, oh yeah. Woo! She jumps. That's God. Have I ever dropped you before? Now, some of you maybe would argue, yeah. James would argue, no. And that's where I would say, man, let's wrestle through that reality that God's a good dad. Because maybe even here this morning, you're like, gosh, I just don't know. I don't know that this equates with good dad. And what I would lovingly encourage you with is good dad somehow has to begin to speak into the mess of this. And maybe even God's willingness to draw you out and God's willingness to redeem you. I want to um, read this over you as we prepare to respond. So why don't you just close your eyes and kind of limit distractions and just kind of want to read this over you about what we know about God. God is who he says he is. He is the only thing that can completely satisfy you. He is your father. He is full of grace. He's full of mercy. He's full of love. He wants to bring you love, joy, peace, patience. He is sovereign. He will give you only good things. He wants to have intimate relationship with you. He is your help in time of trouble. He is good. God will do what he says he will do. He will love you with steadfast love. He will never leave or forsake you. He will protect you. He has good plans to give you a future and a hope. He will supply all your needs. He will take your burden from you. He has an inheritance waiting for you that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. His grace that he has given is enough to cover all your sin. He will do good to you. I am who God says I am. I'm adopted as a child of God. I'm loved always. I'm his possession. I'm his workmanship. I'm holy and blameless. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an heir with Christ. I'm continually being prayed for by Jesus. I'm fully redeemed. All my sin is paid for. I'm welcome in the presence of God. All times, I'm a friend of God. I am a recipient of His goodness. God, Father, Daddy, you are good. You're good.
And we don't say that because we always feel that way. I don't say that because I always feel like the things in my life define you. But I say that because that's your nature and that's your character and that's what the Word says about you. Because you're good. You've always been faithful and you'll do it again. So God, thank you for your favor. Thank you for your love. And God, I pray that right now you would teach us to lean in. Maybe where we struggle to trust you is as its root and at its origin, a distant fear and a distant unbelief. And maybe our challenge, even in the thick of it, for some of us, is to lean in and to find that you will be faithful. You will bring hope. You will restore. You'll love. You'll see us through. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights where there is no shadow due to change. And so God, thank you for your favor and thank you for your love. God, would you walk with us and would you take us deeper? We want to trust you more. We want to believe and walk in the fact that you're good and sometimes we just don't. So we need your help. Um, Would you lead us now as we respond in Christ's name? Amen.